This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars but in ourselves. Good luck. guest is Jody Skillicorn. She's an osteopathic physician, board certified in psychiatry. She integrates conventional medical training with evidence-based holistic methods 
as well as a holistic perspective of our relationship with the world around us, from the healing effects of nature to the disruptive effects of chemical toxicity that exists all around us. And she's the author of this new book that we'll be talking about, Healing Depression Without Medication, A Psychiatrist's Guide to Balancing Mind, Body, and Soul. So, first off, I was really, really impressed with this book. I'm always very heartened when I come across medical doctors who are as open-minded as you are and who are truly exploring the gamut of possibilities for healing and well-being. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm one of those people who've, who've had bad experience with the medical profession, and I had a mother who was an anesthetist, and she worked in a hospital in New York City, and she used to tell horror stories of what happened in the operating rooms. And uh, so I have never, never had much faith in the medical profession. In fact, I haven't been to a doctor in over 40 years. Oh, wow, you've outdone me. I'm going on about 12 now. (laughs) Yeah. So first off, what is depression? What is anxiety? And I'm asking because, you know, the way we define something tends to determine our relationship to it and the way we approach it. Absolutely. Yeah, so the question of what is depression is sort of the million-dollar question that nobody really has an answer to. Pharmaceutical companies and doctors tell us it's a neurochemical imbalance, Um, but there's actually no evidence for that, um, which was shocking to me after having learned that in residency myself in medical school. But when you really dive into the literature, what you find is Right. We're, we're much more complex than that. And to think we can reduce any mental illness or any disease to one simple um, neurochemical imbalance is slightly delusional, actually. Um, what the research actually shows is that about a quarter of people have low serotonin, and that's whether they have depression or don't. And about a quarter have high serotonin and other neurotransmitters, whether they have depression or another mental illness, or don't, and the rest of us are in the middle somewhere, suggesting that there really is no normal, and there's certainly no specific um, correlation. So, so it really isn't that. So then the, re- the question is, well, what is it? And I think the bottom line is there's tons of different etiologies. There's no one way. There's no one pathway to um, depression or any other anxiety or anything else. It's multiple pathways. But the most common one, and the one that research is really focusing on now, although not in the medical field itself, but in the research, it usually takes about 17 years for what's discovered in research to reach doctor's offices, so we're always perpetually behind. Um, but what they're finding is really is it's a matter of chronic stress and chronic inflammation, just like all the other chronic diseases, like diabetes or even cancer or lung disease, all these things, they all stem, we're finding, from inflammation. And specifically for, um, well, not just for so-called mental illness, but really for all disease, a lot of that stems from really early childhood events, often these what's called ACEs, adverse childhood events. And the evidence is really strong that the more of these that we've experienced, um, and these can include things like, obviously, abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, but also neglect or just not even connecting well with a parent for whatever reason. Maybe they have their own issues and they're just not available or 
you know, there's a divorce or there's a loss or there's a death, all these traumas change the way the brain develops, change the way the nervous system develops, change the way a person sees the world and sees themselves in the world and sees themselves as safe or not safe in the world. And this changes our physiology and the structure and function of our brain. And so that is strongly correlated with all chronic diseases. So just for an example, with depression, someone who hasn't had any of these traumas, and to be honest, I haven't met anyone yet, but I guess I see a select group of people, but even in my own life, right, we all have um, some smaller traumas and some bigger traumas, but we've all experienced losses and um, to bigger or lesser degrees. But so someone who hasn't had any of those has about a 12% chance of developing depression as an adult. Um, but someone who's had one of these, that risk goes up to about 25%. Someone who's had two, it's about 40%. And by the time you're at four, we're talking over 400%. And the risk of suicidality goes up over 1,000%. So these, these correlations are huge between these our childhood events and future risk of chronic diseases of all kinds. You mentioned inflammation at the beginning of this, and I'm really curious how inflammation plays into conditions like depression. So so when I'm talking inflammation, so right, it's usually a result of chronic stress. But although that stress cannot just be sort of we think of stress as constant busyness, constant doingness, I have too much to do, I'm so stressed out, um, we're in the middle of a pandemic, I'm so stressed out, but it can also be even stress can be caused by not only the events, but how we perceive the events. So if we use what's going on right now, the pandemic, right? If we perceive um, just walking out the door as a threat, as some people are right now, right? Our whole system gets revved up versus if we recognize we just need to, you know, do what we need to do to stay safe. But, you know, the virus isn't seeping through our windowsill right now. And we're not in immediate threat right here. We're talking and we're fine in this moment. Um, but when our brains kind of travel into the future or into every catastrophe that might happen, our body goes into a fight, flight, or freeze state, and we can stay in that state. And when that happens, we release all kinds of chemicals and everything gets off balance. Our neurochemistry gets off balance. Our hormones get off balance. We keep releasing adrenaline and cortisol, and our body is in this constant state of hypervigilance, and it never gets a chance to release and relax. And it's only when we're in that state, when we're in that calmer state, that we, our body can heal. And so if we're chronically in stress, it just keeps creating more and more stress on the body, which over time just wears it down. And it's so interesting how the pharmaceutical industry and, the, and allopathic medicine focuses on a very materialistic approach to um, mitigating those chemicals in our body, those quote-unquote chemical imbalances in our body, whereas in this book, you talk a lot about natural time-tested approaches to doing that in ways that are far more effective and actually address the roots of, of this issue, of the cause, whereas um, at best, medications only treat symptoms. At best. Yeah, they're treating the temporary symptoms of the moment, but leaving, yeah, the roots unaddressed. So, so again, if we go back to the idea of stress, and both the American Medical Association and the Institute of 
stress both suggest that 80 to 90 percent of all disease is caused by or linked to stress, at least it plays a role. So yeah, basically, most of my book is talking about ways to soothe the nervous system, calm the body, heal the body so that it, 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 it's not in that constant state of stress. And so it can start to heal. And yes, none of the, none of the things I'm suggesting are radical or novel. You're right. They're, they're all really ancient practices that people have been using for a long time to stay healthy um, and to heal the body. Right, to maintain well-being as opposed to even preventative approach to, yes. to well-being. Because when, you, when your focus is on well-being, you, you're not concerned about trying to prevent all these catastrophes that could happen. That, that notion of preventative medicine is also based on fear and stress. Yes, that's absolutely true, yeah. And so I think of it more as balance, trying to balance the body and just connect with what's around us. So some of the things I talk about are just the breath, right? So again, connecting with our own body, but the breath is a really powerful tool to, um, to calm down that, that, that fight, flight, freeze response, to calm down that stress. It's a direct communication. When we breathe into the belly, it's a direct communication to the brain and the limbic system specifically and it lets the brain know it's okay, we're safe right now, we can calm down. And even if we are in danger, um, in, you know, if we have things, you know, say we've lost a job and we have real concerns, still in the moment our work is to calm, is to center ourselves enough so that we can figure out what the next best thing to do is. But when we're in that state of fight, flight, freeze, we can't even think clearly and we can't connect well and, and right, we, we don't come up with good solutions in that place. And unfortunately, that's where our entire culture really is right now in, in every respect, um, right? We spend so much time in that fear place and making, and it leads to bad choices. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because in the Orient, in the martial arts traditions, they train people to actually calm their nervous system while they're in situations of tremendous stress. Yes which is a fascinating notion and one that we're only beginning to explore here in the West. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the, the tools that I use and are starting to be used incorporate that same idea. So, for example, emotional freedom technique and EMDR, which is um, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. They're both um, tools used for trauma, but what they're doing is it's exactly that. You are both experiencing the trauma and sending soothing, calming messages to the body at the same time so that you shift the way the body responds to those memories and those triggers and those reactions. So yeah, that's beautiful how those old tools are really being, le we're learning how to use them in different ways and they're powerful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the ancient spiritual and meditation traditions also talk a lot about working with whatever situations are arising in our lives, no matter how stressful or traumatic, and using them to become even more anchored in our own sense of well-being and ability to stay present with, with those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Building our resilience and our ability to, because life is inevitably stressful. Yes. Um, people, so many of the people I come, I mean, that's just the thing with, especially with depression and anxiety, people want it all to go away. They just it's intolerable, the uncomfortable emotions. And so a lot of the work is learning that 
they're just messengers. They're here to help us. They're not threats. Um, and if we can learn to just kind of sit with them and let them settle, um, that you know, then we don't have to constantly be battling them, which only makes it so much worse. Um, but we can use them as tools to move forward and figure out what's best for our lives and what we need and in any given moment or situation. Right. And you talk about depression. We we tend to see depression as this terrible, terrible thing that needs to be fixed, but depression is, yeah. is a message to to us and something that we can we can work with, we can learn from. Absolutely. Yeah, I see it as a wake-up call, right? Or something's stuck, something's out of balance, and it's there to tell us, and it starts off usually as a whisper, and then it gets louder and louder and louder when we don't heed it. And the same with really anything, not just depression. It, I mean, same with any disease as well, any chronic physical, so-called physical illness, right, is it starts small, and if we ignore it, it, it you know, it just keeps screaming and screaming until it gets our attention, and until we finally have to stop and pause and pay attention and listen to our body and what it's telling us, listen to our emotions and what they're telling us. You know, we kind of live, pharmaceutical companies kind of given us the message that we shouldn't have to feel uncomfortable emotions, that we should be able to just sort of numb ourselves to them, but we also then cut ourselves off from being able to connect really with life. I mean, a lot of people that come to me, they come because... Um, well, a lot of them want need to get off meds or have some other reason, but they also are frustrated because a lot of them have been on them for decades or most of a lifetime, and they've just become really disconnected from their emotions, which is depressing in and of itself because they've lost connection with joy and, and the gratitude and, and the positive emotions of life because they come together. Um, you can't minimize one and not minimize the other. I mean, I've had people come to me depressed because they can't, they couldn't, cry, you know, at their mother's funeral, or they couldn't feel joy at their daughter's wedding. They were just completely kind of cut off from that, all their emotions, which is a depressing way to live. And it sort of perpetuates the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I watched my mother go through some of that briefly. My mother suffered from um, bipolar, manic, depressive stuff. And it was pretty dramatic at times. But at one point, she went, she went on antidepressants. And I remember visiting her. And she was a zombie. And she was falling. And, and she ended up hurting herself. And I just said, that's it. You, you've got to get off of these antidepressants because they don't work. And she actually listened to me. I mean, I was really forceful with her. Yeah. I, I know that some people actually do benefit from some of these drugs, but but I would love for you to talk about, you know, the overall cost to what seem to be the majority of people who don't really benefit from these drugs and, and also to society and the world at large. Well, I think the biggest long-term problem with the drugs is they actually make the problem worse. I mean, I was fascinated when I was going through the literature to find out that before the advent of these drugs, if you look at the data from like the National Institute of Mental Health, the convention was that depression was an acute problem, that the majority of people would, um, it would resolve itself, you know, within six months to a year, and that, that no intervention was really needed beyond support because that was the normal, um, that was the normal course of the disease. And yes, you know, we know people throughout history, obviously there are people where that's not the case. 
um, and they do need more help and they may need some medications. But for the majority of the people, that was the normal outcome is that it would just resolve on its own with time. But now it's flipped. And now the normal outcome is actually that people will, it's now considered a chronic disease where people remain depressed, remain chronically ill for their lifetime. And that's basically what they're told actually when they're first given their meds is you have to stay on these meds or, you know, it will come back. But what the reality is when you really look at the data is that actually people who get off the meds or stay off the meds and never go on them in the first place do better in the long term than those who go on them. And those who, um, even the longer a person's been on it, the outcome tends to be worse over time. And that's pretty consistent data across study after study after study after study. So one of the biggest costs to individuals and society is that we're actually creating a bigger problem than there was to begin with. We're creating a chronic disease from what usually is an acute problem or used to be in the past. Um, so that's a huge one. The other one that's huge is right, where it also when we get caught off our emotions, it also inhibits our ability to connect with not only ourselves but with others and with the world around us, which is a little frightening too because we're meant to connect. Um, we're relational beings and we need these connections, but when we can't feel our emotions, it's harder to connect more deeply and also, it seems pretty obvious that the most intractable problems that we're facing at a global level are being caused by people in positions of power who aren't connecting with other people, who don't have any yeah. sense of empathy and, and understanding of the needs of other people and, and the consequences of their actions upon others and the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very sad. I'm not sure we can blame that on the medications, but yes, a, definitely a sad outcome of of what the reality we're living right now. Right, I think I but think it, a lot of the people who are working for those people are are on antidepressants because it's the only way they could live with the situation yeah, that they're in. I can only theorize, but yeah, I can imagine it would be very hard on one's soul to to live that way. Yeah. So what about resistant depression? How do these uh, natural approaches to balance and resilience and well-being address resistant depression that, that's considered to be unhealable by, by much of the psychiatric profession? So when you look at resistant depression, that almost always correlates with early childhood trauma. And so again, you know, our society, we're trying to treat soul wounds with a biochemical solution and it just, it doesn't work. Um, actually, when I was talking about the adverse childhood events before, 97% of people with four or more traumas in their lives are on psychiatric medications. And these are the most re so-called resistant, these are the least likely to benefit from them because it's not what's going on again. And so the answer really is, one, you have to address the wounds. And we can do that, again, by starting to calm the nervous system, by offering the other key thing is associated with depression is right lack of self-compassion, sort of being stuck in this shame cycle, being stuck in this judgment cycle. Um, and so self-compassion is a really key component of treating those treatment-resistant depression because so much of it becomes, again, you were talking about the story we tell and the meaning behind it influences how we see it. And if 
we've been struggling for a long time, right? Most everyone I see who's gone through that, their their feelings are, I'm broken, I'm not worthy, I'm right. There's these stories underneath, and these stories have to be tended to and addressed and and support and care given to acknowledge those early wounds. And compassion is a really powerful tool. In fact, they've found that studies have found that just seven minutes of heart-centered meditation, um, just sort of breathe, focusing on gratitude and compassion can improve mood and sense of connection with others and decreases risk of depression and improves overall health. And that's just, you know, a seven-minute practice. And that particular kind of practice is it actually shows the fastest shifts in the brain and in the body. And in fact, just eight hours of training in this way, brain scan shows that the brains of novices, people just learning it, resemble those of far more experienced meditators. So it seems that our, right where we are sort of prime for love. And so learning to offer that to ourselves, which for a lot of people with childhood trauma is incredibly hard to do. But to just start with simple things, I often just have people just put their hands over the heart. And some people can't even do that. Just offer themselves that simple, simple act of kindness and tenderness to themselves. But the more you start to do it, the easier it becomes to kind of start to to sense that. I just worked with a woman yesterday. It was so beautiful. She's working through an assault. and And even before that, she's had a history of real perfectionism and having to do everything just right. And she was just doing just this simple heart thing and she just suddenly realized how much she needed, how much she had not through her entire life really been giving herself that kind of compassion. And it just really opened her up. It was incredible, actually. Yeah, the initial discovery that we can actually be kind to ourselves and love ourselves, especially after a life of abuse and also self-abuse, you know, beating ourselves up continually with those kind of stories of unworthiness and and how wrong or bad we are whether it's religious based you know born in sin or or just being perpetually inadequate yeah yeah i mean you're so right right where we our culture sort of yeah that whole idea of born with sin right (laughs) from the very beginning we're told we're unworthy Mm -hmm. such a horrible thing to teach it is very unloving. <laughs> yeah, it makes it a, an uphill climb to uh, to get back to a natural place of balance and uh, self-care. Yeah, yeah. I would love for you to talk a bit about the emerging field of neuroscience and the discovery about how perception changes physiology and the implications of that for for real meaningful change and and healing of things like depression. Yeah, so the science is so hopeful and so powerful and still so ignored, which is so sad. But the science shows, right, literally with every thought and with every action, we're changing our brains. So we used to have this idea that the brain was static. And um, actually, strokes are a good example, right? We used to think you couldn't recover from a stroke because you only had a certain number of neurons in your brain, and as you got older, they just kind of disappeared. And in fact, my daughter had a showed me her, uh, they were just studying the brain, and she's in fifth grade, and they had a book. It was 2002, but one of the interesting facts was there's a limited number of neurons in the brain. It's the only cell that's like that and can't be replaced. And I was like, no, 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 that's so, so wrong. Um, please tell your teacher that's very, very wrong. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, so it's very recent, this, this new information, but the reality is, is our brains can change. And now we know with strokes, you can get all kinds of therapy and the brain really can take time, but it heals. Um, and it's no different with depression and anxiety and everything else. Our brain is constantly changing. And we tend to think of it as static because we tend to keep sending it the same information over and over and over again. And so we keep getting the same results. But when we start to change it, we change the wire, we change the structure, we change the function. And so if we spend, you know, if we're thinking all the time about the worst case scenarios again, again, we're creating the stress, we're creating those connections in the brain, we're creating the sense that there's no safety in the world. But again, by changing our breath, by changing our thoughts, we start to shift that wiring so that our body, it's not as reactive and we're, we're not lost in those thoughts of catastrophe all the time. And when we are, we can pull ourselves back and come to the center and realize the reality of this moment in this present moment that things are okay and the more we do that then that part of the brain gets wired and so it becomes stronger and stronger that becomes our go-to rather than the constant um, shift to worst case scenarios and catastrophes so our beliefs and the stories we tell ourselves and and the expectations that we have grown you know to expect quite literally about the world yes. around us and our yes. place in it and who we are and and what what our future will be based upon the past and things like that how Absolutely. do you how do you work with your clients to to help them change those stories or change their perspectives in a way that will actually begin to change their life experience so the first step is to become aware of our stories so, right, I'm endlessly telling people, right, so our thoughts are not reality, they're stories about reality, right? So, so as they're telling stories, I just keep pointing out the story and, you know, we all have different ways of looking at it, but how we look at it is going to affect how it influences us. And so as they're noticing, as they're telling a story, as they're noticing after they tell it, then we're kind of noticing it as a story, noticing how that feels in the body, Noticing how if we shift the story, how that feels in the body. So a lot of it is getting out of the head and into the body and noticing our body's response. And when we do, we start to notice what we're doing to ourselves. And the more you can kind of keep recognizing, also sorry, the thoughts as thoughts, it creates a little space, a little distance. And so a lot of it's just practice like everything else. And then um, I usually, most of my patients have a regular mindfulness practice of some sort, whether that's focusing on the breath or, but also noticing their thoughts. So it's becoming very, very aware of them and noticing how often they're telling the same story and how many are repetitive and how many of them are negative. So many of them are. We don't really have very many unique thoughts. Most of them are same ones over and over and over and over again. It's like, a, I think of it as like a record player, um, you know, with the rut inside the record player, we keep getting stuck in the same rut, the same ruts, and we have to learn how to recognize we're stuck in the rut, playing the same song and to kind of shift it out. Right. They're kind of like the greatest hits of, of our culture. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or the worst hits of our culture. Yeah. And I often have people actually write that out, right? They're sort of 10 favorite songs that go on in their head, their, you know, their top 10 list, and they tend to be pretty dreary songs. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, it might be one of the reasons why I, I dislike country music so much, because country music tends to focus on, on all those types of songs, those types of stories yeah. and messages. 
So there's a, a fascinating thing that you talk about in the book where you associate space with suffering and happiness. And I would love for you to talk about the notion of obstructed space and unobstructed space in, in this context. Oh, that yeah. So the idea of suffering being obstructed space and happiness and joy being unobstructed. And that's kind of the idea, again, is coming back, stepping out of all those stories in our head. And when we come into the body and when we breathe and, and meditate, right, that we can find that there's always, always this unobstructed space behind whatever's going on in the moment. No matter how stressed we are, no matter how much is going on in our lives, there's always a space we can find internally that's free from all of that. And so, again, the work is to... At first, it can be hard to find that space, but I've yet to meet someone who can't find it for at least a few moments. And it's learning to just kind of recognize it's there and be able to practice going there into that internal space. It's hard to talk about. It's like talking about floating in a pool if you've never jumped in a pool or or swum there, but there is that space and it is available to all of us. So I'm imagining that there are people out there who are listening who will be wondering well, how easy is this to do and and how effective is it really? Because as you said, until you've experienced something, um, you don't really know that it's even possible or that it's even real. Yeah. So I think the most amazing and the most promising research in terms of meditation and mindfulness is, is what they found doing imaging studies of the brain is that it's a practice of 20 minutes a day. So that doesn't have to be 20 minutes altogether, but so I have a lot of my patients do 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night. Um, 20 minutes a day for as little as six to eight weeks changes the structure and the function of the brain so that that part of the brain, the threat detector, the fight, flight, freeze part of the brain, the limbic system is not as reactive and not as quick to get triggered. And the frontal lobe of the brain um, when, when the limbic system gets triggered, the frontal lobe goes offline. It basically gets hijacked. So 80% of the blood in the frontal lobe, so the part of our brain that allows us to think clearly and have perspective and do all the things humans can do, right, it actually gets turned off when we're stressed and living in a place of fear. And so that part, they get disconnected more easily. But just six to eight weeks of mindfulness training for 20 minutes a day creates a stronger connection so it's less likely to get hijacked and the limbic system is less likely to get activated. It'll always still be activated when we need it, right? If you're driving down the road and you have to slam on the brakes, right? It will. That, that's what it's there for, but it doesn't need to be activated every time we think about, you know, our long to-do list or every time we think about when is this pandemic going to end, right? The reality is we don't know the answer to that. And staying there too long again starts to shift us into a state of stress and inflammation. And so the idea is to come back, back to the breath, back to the body. Um, And by practicing doing that, it it really doesn't take that long. And in fact, even an antidepressant, they'll tell you it takes six to eight weeks to take effect. So this is about the same time frame, but you're creating a permanent change in the brain that's actually shifting your responses to the world. So there's another area that I find to be utterly fascinating and wonderful, and that is studies about the heart and how the heart fits into all this and how the heart relates to the brain and the brain relates to the heart and how they're interconnected. There's things like polyvagal theory and, um, 
and how this plays into your approach to working with your patients and and how we as individuals can better understand what's available to us and who and what we we really are and how we can deal with the inevitable challenges of life and to really empower ourselves in the best ways possible. Yeah, so the heart's powerful. So the heart is we think of the brain as sort of being our center, but the reality is the heart is so much more powerful than the brain, and it is sort of the master regulator, the master conductor. And so I think the heart, when it's in coherence, and it's in coherence when we're in a place of gratitude and compassion, and that's where that practice comes in again, what happens is it's able to synchronize all the other patterns, all the other parts of the body. So it synchronizes our respiration, our blood pressure, our brain waves, our hormones. But when we're in a state of fear, everything's chaotic. And it's as if the heart sort of like leaves the podium as the conductor just walks off stage and everyone's kind of doing their own thing because everyone's just struggling to get by, which is really what fear is, both globally and individually, right? We're all in our own little bubbles and no one's communicating and, and so the heart really plays that role as the master communicator and conductor of the symphony. And the emotions are a key part of that symphony. The emotions are translated into energetic messages to the rest of the body, and the heart's kind of in charge of this, and it does it by changing the rhythms. So the research is done around the idea of a heart rate variability, which is the beat-to-beat variability in the heart. So if you have a healthy heart, there's a lot of flexibility and adaptability. So as our you know, with different thoughts and different emotions and different things going on in our lives, our heart's constantly shifting and changing its rhythm. Um, but an unhealthy heart, an unhealthy body, and unhealthy emotionally, um, we, it gets very rigid and unadaptable. And in fact, the heart rate variability is hugely correlated. A rigid heart rate variability is hugely correlated with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, as well as other chronic diseases, including heart disease. So really having a healthy adaptable, flexible heart is really key to healing our whole body. And so the ways to do that are really the same things we're talking about, meditation, breathing, compassion, even being outside in nature shifts our heart rate variability into a healthier way, Um, connecting with others. um, The food we eat has an influence because there's also a connection between the gut and the brain, and it's sending constant messages of well-being or not well-being, depending on really each bite of food we eat. So it's all interconnected. And I think of the heart as sort of the master conductor of all of it. Now, you mentioned how fear can make the heart kind of walk off stage, like shutting it down or shutting it out of... It's not that it's shutting it down. It's that it's doing its own thing. And so it's no longer concerned with conducting the rest of the orchestra of the body. And so everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. So the respiration has its own thing going on. And, you know, the brain's doing its own thing. And no one's in harmony. It's all, it's all become disconnected. Because everyone's just trying to survive, right? It's that fight flight. We're just got to tend to ourselves. So the heart's doing the same thing. So it's kind of like everyone's running for the hills. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, including the conductor or the, yeah, or the pilot or the, yeah, the captain of the ship or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how diet can play into this. You also talk about the importance of exercise and good sleep habits. Yes. Along with diet. Yes. 
they're all so important. So moving our bodies meant to move, right? We were not meant, we were not designed to sit in front of computers all day or sit at a desk all day. You know, when we move, it increases our levels of our neurotransmitters. It improves the neuroplasticity of the brain. It improves our mood. It decreases anxiety. It decreases stress. Um, and study after study, 20 years of studies have shown that it's just effective in the short term and more effective in the long term by far as any medication in terms of depression. And of course, without the side effects, right, only benefits, unless you're working out too hard and then you injure yourself. But otherwise, right, it's it's a win-win. In fact, there was a recent study that showed that exercising for as little as one hour a week, or which comes down to nine minutes a day, basically, can decrease the risk of future depressive episodes by 44%, which is a pretty impressive antidepressant tool and a free one and available to all of us. And then if you add that to going outside, so being outside in nature also is healing. So just 15 minutes near trees and grass and green can improve mood and decrease stress and anxiety and boost your immune system for up to a month. And yet I guess the data shows that fewer than 10% of kids spend time outside daily. And I imagine that's even worse right now. Yeah. Yeah. You also talk about um, connecting with the earth, you know, grounding and and walking on the grass or the dirt or the beach barefoot and how, how, deceptively beneficial, that is, that most people are completely oblivious to that, and yet it has such a powerful effect on us that we are meant to be connected to the earth. We're, we're meant yeah. to be rejuvenated and, um, and actually healed by the earth, but that can only happen through direct connection. That It's not like some quantum leap of healing, but it's, it's, it's like a maintenance of well-being by being connected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful anti-inflammatory and just, just putting our feet on the ground in the dirt. And I think um, this I have no evidence for, but I think a lot of seasonal affective disorder, for example, so not being able to get outside and get your feet in the ground, especially in the winter, is, I mean, I think that's part of what leads to that is that disconnection. But also most all shoes now have rubber bottoms, so we're, we're not being connected we're actually being separated from that connection to the earth. Yes. So continuing on, talk about sleep. Yeah. So sleep, again, another thing that so many of us don't get enough of, it's almost um, prized in our society. And oh my gosh, I know just getting my own kids to sleep, especially I have a 13 year old and he's like, well, none of my kids go to bed. And I'm like, well, then none of their parents know the data (laughs) on sleep, but I do. So you're going to sleep. But what we know is less than six hours of sleep, which is what a lot of people get, increases inflammation and triples to quadruples the risk for depression, as well as dementia, heart disease, strokes, cancer, and even death. And even just one night without sleep increases our amygdala reactivity. So that's that threat detector in the brain, again, our fight, flight, freeze system. It increases activity by 60%. So that means that when we wake up, we're going to be, you know, we're going to, when we're in that state, you can look at a neutral face, for example, or hear a neutral tone from your significant other or from your kid or from a friend, and suddenly it sounds like a threat. and The face looks like a scowl because we're on high alert. And sleep actually helps us recognize body language and, and tone and, and just tune into those kind of things. And without it, we lose that ability again. So again, we're losing our ability to connect. 
And what's even more amazing, and this I did not know until I, I started doing research, there's an amazing book. I think it's Matthew, Dr. Matthew Walker, um, How We Sleep. It's an incredible book. But in there, he talks about how sleep actually acts as free therapy every night. It, it helps diffuse our emotional experiences. So they did this one really interesting experiment where they had a group of, I think, college students look at these really disturbing images that caused emotional reactivity that they could, you know, witness on our MRI. And one group, they showed them the pictures in the morning and then again eight hours later that day. And the other group, it was also eight hours apart, but they showed them later in the afternoon and then the next morning. And the group that had slept on it, their emotional reactivity had decreased. It had just diffused around it. There was just a softening around the issues. And there was another interesting study about a group of people who were going through a divorce and those who dreamt about the divorce um, in their dreams, they recovered more quickly versus those who kind of avoided it even in their sleep. Um, so sleep just plays a lot of really fascinating roles that I think we've only begun to understand. And yet it's something that so few of us get enough of and often even pride ourselves on not getting enough of. And I'm fascinated with the effects of dreams, that the dreams seem to be a natural, as you say, a free form of therapy. Yeah, and how it works. What What is your understanding of it? To me, it's just like meditation in that it's a matter of acknowledging it and sort of working through it and then letting go, right? Just like therapy, but it's all doing the same thing. And so it's it's a process of remembering and forgetting. So remembering what we need to remember, acknowledging it, and then sort of forgetting and letting go of what we don't need to hold on to anymore. How that happens, I, I don't really know, but it's pretty amazing. So is it is it like just being aware of of the story or being aware of the experience of the dream and then, like in the morning, letting it go? That just going through the experience and... Being... And the feeling. And again, it's the emotions, I think. I think emotions are a critical part of it. Feeling the emotions of that dream... And emotions allow us to work through things. And when we avoid emotions, right, we get stuck. That's how we end up. I think that's part of depression and anxiety is we get stuck in those places because we, we can't work through them. They're just stuck and buried so deep because we don't want to look at it. And we don't want to feel. Yeah, we don't want to feel it. Right. And then that creates, makes it bigger. So I always think of it as sort of a pot of boiling water, right? And so if we keep the lid on, if we're afraid to look at it, right, it just keeps getting stronger and stronger, eventually it's going to spill over the sides. And now we have a real problem. But if we, if we keep taking the lid off or just keep it off and keep examining what's going on, right, the water can still boil a little bit, but it's not going to spill over the sides. It's manageable. And so I think, yeah, it's that whole thing of avoidance again, of not, not wanting to feel what's uncomfortable, easier just to ignore it. But when we ignore it, it just keeps brewing, brewing, festering, festering. And again, I think that's part of why those on antidepressants do worse in the long run is because they're basically being trained to avoid and disconnect from the very thing they need that can help them heal. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that I love that you talk about in the book is what you call our emotional guidance system. And I would love for you to talk more about that and how we can learn to use our emotions as a kind of guidance system. Yeah. Okay. So I think maybe the easiest way to talk about that is so when I'm sitting with a patient, they'll be telling me a story and I keep having them check in with their body and their emotions. So they're telling the story and 
most of them are not even aware of what's going on in their body. They're just kind of lost in their heads, telling the story like they've told it to all their friends and everyone else. But when we start to check into the body, we start to notice, okay, so as I'm telling it, my throat is getting really tight, right? So then I'm like, okay, well, what do you need to say? What's not being said, right? So I think of the body and emotions as metaphor. So where it's showing up in the body. So emotions express themselves through the body and then the body where it's expressed is often a metaphor for what kind of needs to happen. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And there's so, like endless um, possibilities of, of how that can manifest in our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, if someone's feeling it sort of in their solar plexus, right? So often, right, when someone's talking about not standing up to their own power or not setting their own boundaries, they'll often feel it, you know, in that center there. Or even pain, right? So people that have back pain, you know, start to think about... Um, you know, well, are you not feeling supported? So just starting to be curious about how and what's being expressed through the body and through the emotions. And then it becomes this wonderful tool we can use to really access sort of that inner knowing and, and what we need to do to heal. We, we have access to it if we just learn to listen and pay attention. So it's like body psychology and learning the vocabulary of it. Yes, yes learning to understand the language of what our body is telling us, what our emotions are telling us. Our thoughts are kind of uh, self-revealing, although we're often oblivious to the effect of them and also assuming that they're, they're true, which is yes. most often not the case. Whereas the yes. body... The body and our emotions, they don't lie, or at least the body no. doesn't lie, and the emotions are the responses to, to what's happening physically and also responding to our thoughts, especially Absolutely. those thoughts that are, that are triggering us in whatever way it may be. Yeah, absolutely. You also talk about the effects of chemical toxicity which we're utterly surrounded with in our current world. One example is um, you see people everywhere drinking water out of plastic bottles. Yeah. And that's just one example. And, and there's also the chemical toxicity of various prescription drugs that most people are being prescribed by doctors. Yeah. Who I can only assume are well-meaning, but I think are gravely misinformed. Yeah. So unfortunately... As far as medications, I mean, we sort of trust the system and trust that they've been tested, but the reality is a third of medications, at least according to one study that followed it over a period of, I think, 12 years, found that a third of them get recalled or a black box get added, you know, of severe side effects. And a third of Americans are on medications that actually induce depression. You know, when these drugs get tested, all you have to do is show that a medication works better than the placebo in two trials, two human trials. And then if you do eight trials, which is actually the case for a lot of antidepressants, you can do eight trials and six of them can fail, but if two of them work, right, you can get a drug through the market and side effects aren't really looked at very strongly. Um, and a lot of them ended up unfortunately being hidden and buried in the data so that people don't find out about it so much later, which is very unfortunate. So yeah, I mean, the medications, uh, the big ones, I mean, Statins, for example, or, you know, almost everyone's on statin these days once you reach a certain age, but they're associated with depression and they're associated with dementia and they're associated with actually increased risk of 
diabetes, but we're just kind of blindly put on them as part of protocol. If your cholesterol is a certain number, then you automatically get prescribed one. And antibiotics too. I mean, sometimes we absolutely need antibiotics without question, but all too often they're used way too quickly as well. And, and those also are associated with risk of depression and anxiety, even, and it completely disrupts the microbiome and can for up to a year, which harms our immune system and makes us more likely to get sick again. So we just have this very strange way of everything's, we resolve everything with a medication. But it's not just medications. You know, you're talking about the plastic water bottles. So most of them now are not made with this phosphonate because that's the one that they found, you know, causes lots of problems. But the reality is all the others are made of similar materials. And they've shown that these cause, you know, reproductive problems and obesity and in utero exposure increases risk of depression and anxiety. So we're just exposed to so many things and we just kind of assume they're safe, but there's very little testing on these chemicals we're exposed to. I'm talking with Jody Skillicorn, an osteopathic physician, board certified in psychiatry, who integrates conventional medical training with evidence-based holistic methods. And she's the author of this book we've been talking about, Healing Depression Without Medication, a psychiatrist guide to balancing mind, body, and soul. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College, Community Radio. And bottles of water, it seems so innocuous and so safe. Yeah, I mean, right. And so, yet the latest yeah. studies, there, there have been very recent studies that show that all bottled water in plastic bottles contains millions of, or at least millions of, tiny little plastic microparticles and we ingest them and they become part of us and they say that our body does not know how to eliminate these tiny, tiny micro bits of plastic. And so they get lodged in our cells and stored away in our tissue. And then we wonder why so many people have autoimmune disease. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, You were talking about pharmaceutical drugs and one thing that really sticks out for me is, you know, in the Hippocratic Oath, the first precept is to do no harm. So how, yeah. how, how do these things go on, continue on? How, how do they keep teaching doctors to uh, use these pharmaceutical drugs that have been proven to cause more harm than good? And that even at best, they're still just treating symptoms and causing other problems that often require other medications to balance things out, which then often requires another medication to balance the effect of that <laughs> drug. So how does this yeah. continue to go on? I mean, we're talking about educated people, doctors who've gone to university, they've gone through medical school, they care about other people. How does this, how does this happen? Yeah, well, I think there's a bunch of answers to that. So I think, one, they're trained in medical school to see the world through this lens of disease and pathology, and we're trained to see the solution to all those problems with medications and procedures, and that's really the focus of medical school. And I have to tell you, so I started medical school, I, like you, I've never trusted the medical system I ended up in medical school because I'd read Christiane Northrup's book, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, and 
her whole mind-body approach appealed to me, and I was like, oh, I could do that. But as soon as I got into medical school, it's so dogmatic. You lose track of other possibilities. It's just over, right? It's such so, there's so much certainty. And when I even listen to other doctors talking, I'm like struck by like, they're just so certain about what they know. And I'm like, how, how can you be so certain? So that's part of it, right? It's just, it's almost like brainwashing, right? It's just mm-hmm. so predominant and it's so pervasive and it's in every aspect of everything you learn and see and do all through medical school that there just doesn't seem to be any other option. So it becomes, again, it's a story. It's a story that I think doctors cling to because it's what we're taught and because it feels safe. There's an answer and uncertainty sucks, right? Uncertainty creates all kinds of uncomfortable feelings and, you know, Doctors really don't like that any more than the rest of the population. So I think that's part of it. The other part is, again, there's a 17-year gap between what's going on in the research labs and what happens, what you're learning in medical school. And in theory, we're even told, you know, by the time you get out of here, you know, a lot of this is going to be obsolete, but it's still what you learn. And so you're just perpetually behind. So that's part of it. But I think the third part is, right, again, it's how our brains work. We see what we expect to see. So in the book, I talked about Daniel Simon's experiment. Uh, yeah. I, Talk, yeah. Um, Tell better, that story. I, I failed that one. Yeah. I mean, years ago, someone sent that to me, and, and I missed, I completely missed the gorilla in, in my first yeah, yeah. viewing. Well, me too. And so did <laughs> 50% of the population. So the idea of the video, and it's really worth watching for anyone listening before mm-hmm. you listen to this, uh, just Google Daniel Simon's experiment, it'll show up. But anyway, so the idea of the video is you are asked to want to count the number of times a ball is passed between the people wearing white. So the ball is white, you're looking at white, your eyes focus on white, you're focused on counting. And me, I wanted, like you, apparently, I wanted to get it right. And I was mm-hmm. trying really hard. I'm counting the ball. And what I failed to see is that in the middle of that scene, a human being dressed in a gorilla outfit walks right through the middle of the scene. And it's a small scene. It's not as if there's a ton of people. Um, and I totally, like you, totally miss that darn gorilla. Totally miss that gorilla. And then I was like, oh, my God, how could I not have seen that gorilla? I meditate. I'm mindful. But I was focusing on what I was asked to do, which was count the balls. And so I totally missed the obvious walking right through the middle of the room. Right. And this is how our brain works. When we're focused on one thing, when we're focused on if we think that medications solve everything, if we're looking for you know, that pill or that procedure, we fail to consider other possibilities and we fail to even see the data in the studies. And of course, it doesn't help that a lot of the data gets buried and concealed or exaggerated in the studies that get published, which is a whole nother conversation. But, you know, so then it becomes really hard to know the truth. And so I think it's not malicious. Doctors, I think, truly want to help. It's just, again, we get trapped in this idea and it's really hard to see outside that box once you're trapped in it. And I think in the pharmaceutical industry, they're trapped in a model of needing to make money and, and to profit and to, to serve their shareholders. Our whole economic yeah. system is 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 so twisted and, and skewed in, in this it very is. inhumane way. So it seems like our, our whole culture is <laughs> is severely dysfunctional. Yeah, and severely blinded. Yeah. Um and, and I and I think part of that blinding is we, we want to see what we want to see, too. It's not even that we're just focused on it, but we want to see it. It's so much easier to think that we can solve our problems with a simple pill, right? I mean, I'd rather be able to just 
deal with whatever I have to deal with by taking a pill in the morning and reading my newspaper. Um, but it's just not how it works. And we want to trust. We want to feel like we can trust doctors yeah. and we feel like we want to be able to trust our authority figures, you know, the people who who are presented in the news as experts and yeah. we want to trust that our government has our best interests in mind. And as you said, we're blinded to these other effects that, that aren't, well, actually they are studied and, and they are talked about, but they're done in a, in a compartmentalized way, like the effects of money and power on these things, like how um, money and power have affected the medical profession, for one thing. Yeah, I mean, without question. And part of that money and power problem is that, again, data is not available. One, even when I was writing my book, I mean, some of these studies, you know, they cost tons of money just to access a study. They're not freely available. And so even if you had all the time in the world, you can't even find the information you want to find easily. And that's ignoring the fact that a lot of it, it just isn't out there and is, is completely buried, especially the pharmaceutical research. Right. And there's a lot of talk about how, well, you know, when, when debunking unstudied healing methods, like people don't realize that it costs a tremendous amount of money to do one of these right. randomized double-blind studies according to the, the standards of the FDA and the AMA. And, right. and people don't realize that that can only be done when it's funded, and it's usually funded by the pharmaceutical industry itself because they're, they're the people who have the yeah. money. Nobody else yeah. has the money to, to put into, into studies, and so it has to be profitable. And holistic, natural methods, there's no profit potential in them. So nobody right. wants you can't to... can't get your it, patent on exercise, yeah. And nobody wants to invest in, in studies right. that will demonstrate the efficacy of, of these kind of things. So therefore, they're easily, um, quote-unquote, debunked as pseudoscience or just yeah. Uh, quackery. Yeah. And then anyone who tries to question that then gets debunked by the those in power as quacks, yeah, as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the medical yeah, profession, people actually system. get prosecuted for practicing highly effective medicine or highly effective healing modalities. I knew a doctor, I knew an oncologist who was prosecuted by the FDA and the AMA. He had about a 95% success rate with his cancer patients, and he was working with the terminal cases, the people that the medical profession said, there's nothing more we can do for you. Go home and take care of your personal affairs. And yeah. he had this amazing track record, and he was ordered, well, first off, they took away his medical license, and he was then ordered to pay back all these people, and all these people did not want their money back. They were all testifying to what a wonderful doctor he was, yeah. and, and they did not want his money back, but, but they forced them to take the money back, and he was exiled from, from the profession. And, wow. and there's lots of horror stories. I mean, I've read, I'm very curious, I like to know everything. <laughs> so I do a lot <laughs> of reading and research about a lot of things. And this is not an exception to the rule. This happens a lot in our world. Yeah. Yes, it does. Which is a really strong incentive to not ask those questions. Right. And not, not rock the boat. To not step outside the box 
right yeah that's a pretty powerful um reason not to and especially in particular in the cancer realm doctors can only use standard procedures even though they're not effective they've been overwhelmingly proven to not be effective except in in a number of cases that correlates that's equivalent to the effects of placebos and placebos don't have the toxic side effects of chemotherapy and radiation treatments yeah actually one of my friends was just diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer over a year ago now and but she had to in order to not complete their protocol in the way they wanted to do it because she was using lots of other she was using acupuncture and diet and her tumor actually vanished but they wanted to complete the protocol in the way that it had been designed. And so she actually had to go and be evaluated by a therapist and then had to go in front of uh, basically a panel of people to prove that she had the right to make a decision about her own care and her own body, which, again, is a pretty powerful disincentive to take those actions and to challenge the system even as a patient, too. Right. And most people have been literally brainwashed to believe that doctors know best. And medicine is like a priesthood to, you know, the mass population. They see doctors as infallible and knowing what's best. Well, a lot of doctors think that too. (laughs) Right. Right. That, That was my experience with doctors back in my early days was that they were incredibly arrogant and forceful about trying to impose their ignorance upon me. And at the time, I had been studying um, energy healing and other healing approaches. I've always been into alternative perspectives in all realms, because what I've basically learned is that the majority is generally wrong. And even the two polarized sides of, of an issue are usually wrong and right about about half of, of what they believe in. So nobody seems yeah, to have the again, big picture. Yeah, and again, that's how our brain, yeah. Yeah, talk that's about the brain. That's how our brain filters information too, right? We take in what, we take in all the points that prove what we already believe, right. whether it's medically or politically, and, and we dismiss points that are contrary to that. Right. As anomalies rather than actual information that, might actually have valid point in the middle of this mix. Yeah. Or, or outright unreality. And there's a story yeah. that you, you tell in the book about Mohini the tiger. Yeah. Yeah, I love that story. So Mohini was a tiger um, donated to, well, it went to the National Zoo. It was, it was a gift. I don't remember who it was a gift from. But anyway, so this beautiful tiger, they needed to find a home for it. So they had just had this small cage at the National Zoo and it was a 12 by 12 foot cage for this big creature. Well, it grew to be a big creature. It was a, it was a, it was a baby at the time. And so um, the zoo raised all this money to build this beautiful new facility for the tiger so she could, you know, wander and have, you know, waterfall and, you know, hills. And anyway, so they had this grand opening and all these people came to see how excited she would be when she got into her new environment and she just immediately went to the back 12 by 12 corner and paced back and forth and she stayed there the rest of her life she she was still trapped in the bars that she'd been raised in and failed to realize there was this whole environment and space beyond that 12 by 12 foot space and we all do this to some degree um to Mm -hmm. varying degrees but 
we all get trapped in these bars and these beliefs to our own detriment. It keeps us all small. Mm-hmm. So what's the most effective way to to break out of those bars, to see beyond those bars? So again, I think it's starting to recognize our stories as stories. So it's paying attention and awareness and then starting to use not just our heads, but our bodies and our hearts to, to gather information so we have more um, points of access and more points of view. And, you know, that's sort of psychologically, but in terms of kind of what you're talking about as well, I mean, I think we also need to step out of our bubbles that we live in and read other things that, that aren't normally what we would read and watch things we wouldn't normally watch and listen to other points of view, um, even when we don't disagree, but maybe there's something in there that's valuable and, and helps us to understand at least, you know, but to step out of our, we have so many different kinds of cages. Yeah, we, we certainly do. So I would love for to, to talk about the pandemic and, and the effect it's having on people and what you're seeing with your patients and, and how you are coping. Like you have a family, you have kids. How are you dealing with this issue and how are you noticing the effects of it and, and how you're helping others to deal with it and yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for myself, being constantly in the presence of others, I've had to do more of my own work. I've had to breathe more and meditate more and I've done more yoga and I've actually been taking classes online with people I've been wanting to take classes with forever, but I couldn't do it before. Um, So that's, you know, that's kind of how I've been dealing with it. But as far as what I've seen in my practice, it's been interesting because it's been a split. I've seen people who are doing way better, um, especially anxious people. Some, well, it's two groups. There's a group of anxious people who are doing better because, right, they suddenly realize they're not the, there's nothing really wrong with them. Like other people are anxious now too, And so it seems more normalized and they don't feel so different and broken. It's been interesting to see other people though. It's just the opposite and they're afraid to even open. Initially they were afraid to even open a window for fear. Someone walking by might sneeze and somehow that virus was going to sneak into their window from the sidewalk outside. Um, And so again, it's stepping out of the story and just coming you know, using some, what facts we know, but just coming back to, you can only control what you can control and we can't control everyone else. And we don't know what the answers are and we don't have any certainty. And we just have to live in that space and to find again, that, that unobstructed space um, and to take more time, not less, you know, so that we can relax our nervous systems and just see the, what's going on for what it is and not adding in all the fear and doomsday behind it. And it's not as if none of that's happening. There is, there's horrible things happening. But on an individual level, we can't control all that. And all we can do is kind of do our own work. And, and then people that are feeling helpless, right? I think the compassion work is really important there because you can offer compassion to yourself and to others, which becomes healing for not only oneself, but for others and for those around us. And so I think it's a time where we can offer that out. And the more centered we can be, the more centered... It influences those around us. There was an amazing study, uh, a framing health study, where they looked and they found that, you know, if our friends are happier, we're more likely to be happy. And even if our friend's friend is happier, we're more likely to kind of feed off of that. The point being we're all connected and our energies influence those not only near us, but, you know, beyond influences those who know us and those who know them and those who know them. And so 
I think our work is to stay as centered as we can during this and recognize that that is actually valuable to all of us. Yes, and I would love for you to talk more about that concept and experience of group coherence. Yeah, so there was an interesting... So um, the HeartMath Institute has done a lot of research, really fascinating research on this. And so there was one study, for example, where two strangers met and they meditated together, I think, for 20 minutes. And then they were separated. So they, again, they'd never met. They were complete strangers. So they just had this 20 minutes together. Then they were separated. And they were put in these Faraday chambers, which block all sensory and electromagnetic input. So there's no way they can communicate. And in one of the chambers, they were flashing lights periodically. And they were monitoring their brain waves during this time. And, and what they found was is when they flashed the lights on the one person, the other person who had just trained with them, so they were now in train together, they were connected, the, their brain waves did the exact same thing. So there was no way they were exposed to the stimuli, but they were on some level connected with the person that they had just connected with so much that their brain waves were mirroring the brain waves of the person that was actually having the experience. And so if you magnify that out at a global level, right, it's imperative that we, we calm our own nervous systems, that we find that center for ourselves, that we stay grounded, that we stay connected, because we're influencing those around us, whether we know it or we don't know it. So as I do my healing work, right, I'm helping others. And as you do yours, you're helping others. And, and it, you know, it expands outward, find that very hopeful. <laughs> yes. And also at the same time, it can help us understand the effects of reacting with fear, like especially at a time like this with this global pandemic. And, and Absolutely. Right. If, it works the other way too, without right. question. And that's what we have to be careful of is that we, yeah, if we're in that fear place, we build it on everyone else. But, you know, I never show up and see a patient unless I've already meditated myself and sort of centered myself because I don't want to be bringing my anxieties, my stuff to someone else. So I think it's a matter of learning to hold space so we can hold it for others and recognizing what a powerful influence that can have if we all do, if more and more of us do that work. And what a powerful practice to bring our best self to each new situation. Yeah, it'd be a different world if we all did that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And imagine if these kind of things were being taught in school for kids. Yes. And, yeah. also, and also being taught to people like in police training and in medical school and in business and law school. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, and more and more of that is happening. So um, HeartMath Institute has brought some of this into various schools. Um, and police forces and, and those kind of institutions. But yeah, we definitely need more of it. And lots of more schools are doing meditation as well. Unfortunately, I think it's mostly schools where the kids are in um, lower income areas, which is a great place to start. But I think, again, we all, we all need it. Like it should just be part of in kindergarten, you start here. You know, we should start learning emotional vocabulary, start learning how to calm our nervous system, start learning how to offer compassion to others. Right? It should just be part of our training from a really early age. Mm -hmm. Maybe someday. <laughs> and also compassion to ourselves so that we can be in a position yes. to offer compassion to others. 
yeah, you can't have one without the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I'm so grateful that, that you're doing this work and that you put out a book that's so clear and and hopeful on this issue of depression. And thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with you too. Be well and good luck with everything. Thanks, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. That was Jody Skillicorn. She's an osteopathic physician, board certified in psychiatry. She integrates conventional medical training with evidence-based holistic methods. And she's the author of Healing Depression Without Medication, a psychiatrist's guide to balancing mind, body, and soul. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other and go to wgdr.org to support local community radio. Jackie, 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 Jackie.